right eye dominant. 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 This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. For today's episode, I have an interview set up with a photographer by the name of Rick Schatzberg. Uh, Rick and I had been communicating via email, and he let me know that he had a book out called The Boys. And uh, I took a look at the work, and I was immediately drawn to it for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is that the photographs come from uh, the Long Island suburbs of New York City. I myself growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, I think there's just a lot of common ground here. The other thing that is of note is that uh, Rick uh, came to photography later in his life, uh, not really taking it seriously until he was in his 50s. And so he pursued studies, uh, very serious, rigorous studies in photography, which then led in culmination to this really fantastic book called The Boys. So I thought it would be great to talk with Rick about his journey to photography later in his adult life and studying uh, photography in an MFA program and what the challenges of that were like for uh, somebody not just out of high school and college. And then we talk about the book The Boys, which is this really beautiful photographic exploration of Rick and a group of male friends that he has had since he was a very young man. And the photography is really a visual dealing with aging, loss, death, and the challenges of maintaining close connections with people as you go through your life. I thought this was a really, really special conversation. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode, my conversation with Rick Schatzberg. Uh, so welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast, Rick Schatzberg. Hi, thank you. Good to be with you, Nick. I wanted to just maybe, uh, as an introduction to the listeners, just maybe you can tell me a little bit about um, a little biographical information uh, and specifically how you ended up uh, in, in the world of photography. Sure. Um, well, I came to photography, uh, at least as a maker of photos, relatively late in life. I had, a, I think, a long-term uh, appreciation of photography um, and even collected a little, my wife and I did. Uh, but um, I really only started making work um, in my 50s, and it gradually sort of took over all my time more and more it wasn't a plan it just started to uh to take over all my spare time and then um really every time every bit of time i had available and i so i was self-taught at first uh, and then 
uh, decided to try taking a couple of classes at ICP in New York City. And that was helpful just to uh, get some technical information. I was shooting digitally at the time, and I didn't know anything about uh, Lightroom and Photoshop. Um, and one thing led to another. Um, I, I started thinking I might like to do this more seriously, uh, at least study on a full-time basis. And I took some, uh, I took a, a class. It was actually a six week program at Columbia with, uh, Tom Roma. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, really extraordinary for me. I thought it was, it was very intense. It was good. And then from there, I went back to ICP in their full-time program and uh, did that. That was a year long program. It's a certificate program, not really a, an MFA or anything. And that was great. I, I sort of thought of it almost as like getting a BFA in photography because you really had to cover everything, including black and white darkroom, color darkroom, um, all the digital uh, workshop stuff as well, history of photography, did a little of everything. Um, and um, I really appreciated that experience. After that, I was just making work on my own, but now trying to work with film. I had started working with medium format and then large format, uh, you know, four by five camera. And then about a year later, I decided I'd like to go for it and try to get an MFA, um, which not necessarily for the faint of heart at mm -hmm. the, in your sixties, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> what did I know? And I found um, a program that really seemed to work for me. It's uh, University of Hartford has a low residency program where you can live and work wherever you live and work. And, um, but it also was very intensive. It wasn't, I didn't look at it as a part-time, um, obligation. It really was full-time. And so I did that. And in the course of doing that program, uh, which is very uh, photo book oriented, right. Um, I started working on a project that eventually became, uh, the book, the boys, a couple of things, and I, I had read your bio online, and and the the things that did jump out at me were were obviously the sort of coming to photography later in life. But the 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 other thing that really jumped out at me was the you know the 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 places that you studied. Those are all like you know important programs or 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 a challenge to i think uh you know they, they at least show your uh, you were serious about this pursuit and then i was familiar with the 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 university of hartford program because at one time i was also i was like wow you know i never went for my mfa maybe that would be um and one of the reasons why i was like backed away from it was that i thought i was you know maybe too old for it. So, uh, yeah. which I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what, just before we move on from sort of your education, sure. does, what, were you an older student compared to, I mean, like, what was that dynamic like? What were other students like? Your interaction with, uh, uh, you know, the, who was teaching there? Um, I know that it's semi, it's remote learning or whatever. So what would, can you just talk a little bit about what that experience yeah. was like? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I was by far the oldest. Um, I was, I was used to that, um, from ICP actually in that full-time program. Um, you know, it was a few years younger, but the, I was, uh, everybody else was in their 
20s, maybe early 30s. So the age of my adult children, um, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I see uh, at, at Harford, it was pretty much the same, although there were a couple of uh, students that were a little closer in age, um, too, really. But, you know, in a class of 11, most people were, um, I would say, late 20s, early 30s, which is a good age to to pursue an MFA, especially if you're doing it, uh, perhaps to get a teaching job, which it's pretty much required now. It's the, right, right. Um, and um, so there's, you know, definitely uh, a dynamic in terms of age difference. On the one hand, I really enjoy being in multi-generational situations. I think it's healthy. In the other um on the other hand, I feel it is a little difficult because people really have no concept, even the teachers who you might be the same age or a generation older than. Mm-hmm. Um, photography teachers I've had, some great ones, have been in their uh, for early 40s, typically. Um, mm-hmm. Some older, um, um, you know, some my age. But there, I feel like the um, the life experience it's something that an older student brings isn't necessarily recognized or, you know, you could say, well, you're not here for that. You're here to learn, you know, just learn photography. Mm -hmm. But we all come to it with something uh, different. And um, so I think it's a bit challenging for an older student to um, uh, be in that milieu. You know, there's a, a great book, uh, by a woman named Nell Painter called Old in Art School. Mm. And she, uh, she is the retired, uh, chairman of the history department at, Pr- at Princeton. And after in her mid sixties, she went to RISD uh, as a, pa- as a painter, actually. Um, and, uh, wrote a book, Old in Art School. And everything she described about its difficulties, I felt, uh, that I could relate to. In fact, we communicated afterwards about it, you know, mm. in emails. And she wrote a blurb for my book. Um, but she describes it as one long tearing down. And I think that's true in a lot of ways. And I think that you react to that differently depending upon A, your temperament, the type of person you are. But B, maybe that has something to do with age as well, um, where, um, you know, maybe you're looking for a little more, uh, support or maybe a, a sort of mentorship. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the model in art school. Um, it's, you know, it's just not the pedagogic model of, of being a mentor. So that was an adjustment, um, you know, for me. It's, we're at it. We're certainly at ages where it's like, where do you, where can you turn for that kind of guidance? Yeah, it's, I think that's a challenge. I, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the answer to it is. I've thought about this, like what would the alternative have been? You spend a lot of money for a program like this, and you could select a variety of mentors, you know, maybe somebody with whose photographic vision you admire, then somebody whose uh, technical skills might be helpful to help, you know, to, for printing and that sort of thing and, and spread your money around differently. Now you don't come out with the same type of credential. Um, but the credential wasn't really important for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought, Oh, it might be nice to do some teaching at some place like ICP, but I never really pursued it. And, um, for others, the credential 
is the thing, or it's you know one of the more important um, factors. So I never quite figured out what the alternative could be. Um, one of the things about a low, the low residency design. Well, let me take a step back. I should say that the the overall program design that Robert Lyons, who's the dire- director of uh, Harvard, came up with is is really brilliant. Um, it's it's just the way it's structured is is very brilliant. You know, you're you you were working on Skype, it's probably Zoom now, with um, your advisor submitting work and having a one on one review every two weeks. So you so you're, there's a lot of work. You have to submit mm-hmm. a lot of, a, mm-hmm. a lot of work, um, and at the same time you're in a group crit group that meets once a month, which is a mixture of first and second year students, which is a, sort of a nice design. And then there are a few uh, in-person residencies throughout the year. Um, so two-week residencies uh, starting in Hartford for a couple of weeks and then um, always Berlin in the spring. So two mm. years in a row, um, Berlin. And then there's one sort of wild card place, which for us was San Francisco for the last couple of years. I think it's been in Tokyo for, for people. Um and that's fantastic because the uh, the exposure, not just to be in those places, but the people that come in to help uh, with the reviews, the critiques, are, you know, from uh, a completely different photography environment. And so that's good as well. The, the list of uh, reviewers, in addition to full-time staff, is impressive, sort of you know, like Yale or RISD would have an impressive list. Same with, um, with Hartford, Alex Soth and Mark Steinmetz. And, you know, you're really, um, working with, with, with great people. So all that said, the, w- while the design is really fantastic, one thing about a low residency program, at least this one, is that, um, your relationship with your advisor, you have a, an advisor, a different advisor your first year and, from your second year, um, takes on a very heightened importance because you're not going to a building and bumping into other uh, professors and students all the time and getting other feedback and saying, you know, can I talk to you about this? I'm sort of stuck. It's really with that one uh, advisor. And I, so I think that has its advantages, but it definitely has its disadvantages of uh, not being in part of a bigger community all the time for that two and a half year period. There is a sense of community that develops, but it's different than if you were, um, you know, in New Haven together or, Provi- you know, or Providence together or someplace like that. Um, so I always, you know, I, I do get calls from people uh, regularly asking me, you know, uh, they're considering the program, uh, they're having an interview, you know, can I talk to them about it? And I try to point out the pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Um, although I have found, much like I was when I was looking for that, that usually by the time they call someone like me, they've already decided they want to go and they're, and they're looking for, you know, affirmation that that's a good choice. So um, so I try to be careful about how I phrase it, but I think it's important to know what you're getting into and to know how to, therefore, to know how to get the most out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it's very expensive. I mean, it's low residency is less than, I guess, a full time uh, or, you know, a full residency program. But we're talking about real, real money. So people yeah. come out with debt. 
Yeah. And I was at a point in my life and a, a place where I could pay for this. I didn't have to borrow to, to go to school. So, um, but I think it's different if you do and then mm -hmm. have to, of course, scramble for work, whether it's commercial photographer or as, you know, a teacher, um, you know, it's, it's a struggle for, for people. Right. Right. Maybe this is a good point to segue into talking about the, the, the book you sure. mentioned. You, so you mentioned that that was sort of that, that your, your experience uh, in the program sort of led you to, because it was a, a photo book centric, I guess is a, a way to look at it. Um, that, that sort of led you to where you went and ended up with the boys. Um, can you talk about sort of the origins of the project, uh, maybe within the context of, of studying at the program, but then also sort of how it made its way into the book, the, the final book? Sure. So, um, I, so you have to do a thesis project as part of the program, which is something that you don't really begin until the second year. You're, you're encouraged actually to, to not even think about a thesis project your first year and to just work on different things. Um, not everybody ends up doing that. Some people stay with the same project, but I think the logic of that suggestion is good so that you can experiment, maybe use different cameras, just different, uh, just different approaches. And, and, th and that's what I did. I never had uh, been a portrait photographer. In fact, I was a little intimidated by making portraits and somehow that's what I ended up getting nudged towards in my first year. I, mean, I think it became obvious in some early critiques that uh, while I liked having people in the landscape, some, something I'm still attracted to, uh, figures in the landscape, um, I sort of had a anxiety about getting up close and really talking to somebody and making a formal or informal portrait. And I think when that became obvious, various uh, teachers and reviewers sort of nudged me in that direction. Um, and so I'm feeling like, well, I'm in school. I should, I should take that advice. It, what added to the challenge or my anxiety is that at that point I was really working with mostly with four by five, um, some medium format film as well. And so that sort of raises the stakes in doing, in doing portraits because you're not, you know, snapping away. You're, um, really setting up a shot. You're only going to have a, a few chances to, to make the portrait and um so I, I felt like um it it made my task harder but i enjoyed that challenge that was fine so i did a couple of uh short projects in the first year that were sort of portrait centric i don't know that any of those portraits were any good but um at least i became comfortable uh, with the process, with the camera, with with using the camera that way, as opposed to say using it for a landscape where you have all the time in the world, um, I was I had been giving some thought to what my project would be for the for my thesis project, and a thesis project at Hartford consists of a few things. One is you make a photo book. Obviously, you're not going to print something in a large number of copies, but you'll at least um, have a maquette with two copies. Um, you then are making uh, exhibition prints for the for the thesis show, and you're also writing a thesis, a mm -hmm. written thesis, anywhere between ten and twenty five pages, which is a bit unusual actually in a photo program. I found out not too many programs do that. Um, 
that causes a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. I actually like the written part. I, I like writing and it helps mm -hmm. me think through what I'm doing. So, but it's a lot of work and, and all that work comes at the tail end of the whole program. You're doing all those things at the same time, making a book, making exhibition prints and, and writing. Um, but in, in terms of the subject matter, I hadn't really, I, I, you know, I kept thinking about different things. And then while I was um, actually in Berlin for the second of the two Berlin residencies, I got a call from a friend in New York saying that our mutual friend, John, had had been found dead. He, he'd, and he had died of an overdose. And... Um, it was one of those classic things of being shocked, but not surprised. Um, but it also was nine months after another friend from the same group of friends died um, of a heart attack. And that really was, did feel like it was out of the blue. Now, this is a group of friends that I've known uh, from my earliest childhood. Um, some, some literally from you know, before we could talk <laughs> and then others mm -hmm. from kindergarten and then others from middle school, but it coalesced as a, a group that uh, by the time we were in high school, we referred to ourselves, we were referred to as the boys. So that's where the, the name came from. And um, before those two guys died, there were 14 of us. Um, now there were 12 and um, on the plane ride home from Europe, I mean, I couldn't get this out of my mind, and I started thinking about I should photograph all of us while we're still here to be photographed. Um, really wasn't thinking at that point about the project as a book or anything like that, but I was thinking that um, I really need to sort of just memorialize who we are and who's left and the relationships that we have because it's sort of unusual to maintain, uh, especially for, for males, I think, to mm -hmm. maintain a relationship in well into your sixties that, you know, so this is decades and decades of, of, of friendship. Um, when I was at the, um, the funeral of, of John, um, afterwards I started approaching my friends just about doing a photographic project and everybody was sort of interested. And, and that was sort of interesting. It's not a group of people who normally I would think want to be photographed. Um, and, uh, and the more I thought about it, the more I started thinking, this is something I really should focus on seriously. And maybe there's, maybe this is the work I should be doing. This is the project I should be doing. It almost felt fatalistic, really, that this is mm. the thing that I now have set aside all this time for in, in school to, to really focus on this. And I started talking to each of my friends about this individually and everybody was sort of up for it. In fact, they felt, um, I think, engaged with the idea of, um, of collaborating on it. And, you know, I explained that once it becomes a project like this for, for my master's thesis, um, there is deadlines and we can't miss them mm -hmm. and that other people are going to be looking at this work. Um, you know, there's a critical audience, literally critical audience, um, that, uh, the photos it'd be making may not be flattering because the idea is to kind of show us as we are. And uh, nothing really, um, nothing I said necessarily turned anybody off. Everybody was up for it. And uh, so that's how it began. At, at, at that moment, 
I actually thought I'd be making, you know, what I'd call a pure photo book, just, you know, maybe an essay at the beginning or the end of it, but that there would be just um, photos of me and my, and my, and my friends. But the more uh, time went on and the more things I tried in terms of photos, um, the more I started to come to the conclusion that in order to tell this story, which was starting to feel like a memoir or, or a group memoir, at least that I needed to add some other elements to it. Uh, one was a text. I felt that photos, while obviously what they do best is show the surface of things, the interiority, the thoughts, my thoughts, um, aren't, aren't there in a photograph. Uh, you can try to infer them, but I, I don't think that really is accurate. And I wanted it to have that sort of accuracy. So I thought I would do some writing. And, um, and then second, um, I did have a lot of, or had access to, they weren't all mine, um, hundreds and hundreds of snapshots mm -hmm. that were taken by various people uh, when we were young. So in the 60s and 70s. And I was sort of discouraged by a couple of the teachers from doing that, almost like, um, oh, that's sort of passe, people have done that. And, and so at first that I was not going to do it. But then the more I thought about it, and I talked to my specific advisor, uh, 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 Michael Varenwald is his name. He's actually an uh, excellent uh, teacher and photographer. Um, the more I think I, it just seemed obvious that I should use those. And the challenge would be how to take elements like like words and snapshots and contemporary photographs and mix them together in something that didn't feel like a diary or a, a scrapbook and um that you know it's not necessarily easy but it then became obvious to me that i needed to engage a good designer a professional designer somebody who um can do this in a way that um really works and not mm -hmm. just sort of slapping together the different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. elements um so i did that i found uh i i i had long admired the dutch photo book tradition uh seen a lot of work by different designers where they mix various elements together uh successfully in my in my you know my regard and um i was introduced there was a librarian at icp who i uh, had become friends with and he introduced me to uh sib the uh, Dutch photo book designer whose work I actually was familiar with. And we hit it off immediately. Um, mm. He was uh, close to me in age, not quite, the, the, not quite there, <laughs> but the thoughts and he, so he looked at some of the photos, but he also read some of the things that I'd been writing. And these were the things that were on his mind. And so I think he took the project personally. And I, I had some concerns about working um, just via zoom with a, or uh, or on the phone or email mostly actually mm -hmm. um, and that turned out to not to be an obstacle at all um, so we were the back and forth was constant and um so anyway so that's how i got to the subject matter and i've begun to tell you a little bit how i got to um you know sort of the concept mm -hmm. of of the book and I'll let me leave it there and let you ask any questions. That you yeah. Have. Yeah. Interestingly, the, the idea of um, the, the sort of the, the 
the resistance to the idea of maybe using the snapshots. Um, I look at this book and I couldn't imagine them with not being there. Um, and, and I think that, um, I, I also think about the value of, uh, that kind of documentation of when, you know, I think it was just sort of the the common thing that we did. Also, there was always a, a camera around. And when we were, you know, goofing around or getting high or, you know, whatever it was to just sort of have a camera around and then to that it obviously yielded such an integral part of of the project and how it complements the, the more recent fo photographs that you created. But also then I think about and again, a generational thing where um, most people are just documenting things on their phone now and they don't end up uh, actually being printed. Uh, and I just think of, and I think there's a reference to it. It, it may have been uh, in uh, Rick Moody's uh, text uh, where, you know, you, you take, how do you make a photograph uh, significant or that you put it, you take it, you put it in a drawer for 30 years <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, it's, is is in, in some ways very true, but like these photos work with the new photos specifically due to the, the sort of the subject matter and the context that you're creating, but also the fact that these photographs existed at all, that everyone had sort of their own little stockpile of, of the snapshots that became such an important part of the project. And I just think about like, you know, what, possible future stories are not going to be told because people aren't accumulating snapshots or everything's just sitting on their iPhone and or if something gets fried on a hard drive and then you're you're they're gone. And so um I think that is also sort of wrapped up in this whole idea of like, well, what is this sort of vernacular snapshot aesthetic? And obviously, you know, there's certain photographers that have just kind of made a, a career out of that. But I, I think that looking at your, the, the portrait work, the, the, the recent photographs in here um, and trying to imagine, even if it was those photos and your writing, I, 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 I think this project, not that it wouldn't have been successful or would have been unsuccessful, but I just can't imagine it. Yeah. Well, I would, have made very, I, I would have made different contemporary photographs if I didn't have the snapshots. So once I had, once I knew I was using the snapshots that showed um, uh, people in motion and, you know, um, energetic and that sort of thing, um, then I became interested in, in, in making portraits where everybody was isolated mm -hmm. and that you, you know, there's a certain sadness to that, and there's, and but you really focus on the skin and you know the just the isolation. Um, but I don't know that I would have. I, I mostly enjoy looking at environmental photos, actually, and these are not environmental photos. They mm -hmm. there's no context. Um, but I only did that knowing that I had to contrast with the snapshots. I probably would have made very different choices if I was doing something without the snapshots. I think that the decisions to do things like uh, um, use 
vernacular photos, snapshots, uh, and to use text um, helps with other decisions about what kind of contemporary photos to make. So when I first started the project, and I didn't know, um, I didn't really have a, concept, a visual concept um, or a storytelling concept. I was using a couple of different cameras. I was taking all sorts of pictures um, outdoors at people's homes, uh, uh, pictures of some of these guys together, um, clowning around or or not. Um, and it was only when I decided to use the snapshots and text that it started to occur to me that, um, or suggest to me that a certain type of uh, portrait could be used that did not try to show everybody together, that didn't try to necessarily show the nature of the relationships or the friendships uh, today, but that really showed people in isolation because that's a big reality in our lives too. And this is actually pre-pandemic, but clearly a much more isolated existence. Everybody in touch with each other via phone and text and, and occasionally getting together and twos or threes, but, um, you know, more of an isolated existence and something that tends to happen with, with age. Um, so each of the decisions about what elements to use in, in the book, in the story influence the other decisions is, I guess, the point I'm making. Right. Right. And well, what's interesting also is the, 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 to hear that you sort of played with different formats or approaches to the, 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 the recent photographs um, before settling on the isolated uh, subjects with a four by five, it was four by five, correct? Yes. Four by five. Yeah. Um, which uh, the process of using that camera, very different sort of interaction with your subject matter, very methodical, methodical setup very uh, as you said earlier sort of like um you don't have the luxury of just endless amounts of room on a memory card or even if it's a a roll of film where you know you're you're having to be a lot more intentional with the camera but also um and i, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier on as far as sort of your sort of journey to portraiture um you end up using a format which requires, I think, a certain comfort level or intimacy with your subjects. You're dealing with people who you've known your pretty much your entire life. However, you're also you're you're you may be taking advantage of that intimacy of of relationship that you have with them, but also you're sort of showing up with this device that is most likely creating a, a it's just a different feeling for both the photographer and the subject matter when you're you've got this view camera there or maybe you're under the cloth and you're doing your thing and they're sort of sitting in their isolation probably much longer than if you were shooting with the handheld camera um but then also the um the amount of detail that you're able to produce with that camera. Um, the, I think of like the Avedon American West series where, you know, I don't know 
what your process was like, like when you decided, okay, did you give them the heads up that you were sh- going to trip the shutter? Were you sort of visible from under behind the camera when like that whole sort of, and I don't necessarily need to know answers to that, but I look, I think about, okay, he's shooting with the view camera. What must have that been like for him and the subjects? And you could just be standing next to the camera with your cable release and just having that, you know, it's not like, okay, hold that moment. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just, it's in some ways, again, like it's hindsight, but it feels like, well, that was the appropriate choice to make those photographs. Well, the, you know, there's a few things that I would uh, say. One is that um, the, the choice to use the four by five with all of its fussy rituals and, you know, processes um, made the whole experience feel ceremonial in a way. I mean, here we were sort of lamenting over our friends, you know, two friends passing away so recently and, um, and that this was being done uh, as, as a response to that. So it did feel ceremonial, ceremonial in a way. And I felt, that they were collaborating with with me in a way in terms of the sort of the technical process though it was challenging in that um these were made mostly in the winter they were indoors in people's homes with and it was natural light mm. so these were long exposures um and you did need them to be very still oh okay uh, and mm. there were there, you know there were some photos that didn't quite make it because they weren't, uh, you know, there was some, some slight blur. Um, and, uh, you know, and I learned a lot about, you know, trying to deal with um, window light in portrait film mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, midwinter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, there were all sorts of uh, challenges there, but you know, there's that, that's fine. It, it might've been easier to do this, um, digitally but somehow i felt like the work involved was right for the project mm-hmm. and um uh, so yeah it's- yeah interesting though because this sort of the ceremonial aspect as you described sort of the approach of using that camera and the sort of the subject matter the stories in the book it all does you know it, there there seems to be sort of a internal logic to how things ended up playing out. But it, it, I didn't realize that the, I mean, I, I look at the photos and I'm like, yeah, that's natural light. That makes sense. But the, I, I was wondering of sort of like how, cause I, I generally don't shoot portraits uh, and I've worked with a four by five camera, but I've always imagined like that sort of, does it become a barrier or does it actually become a conduit for that, you know, intimacy of, of that you actually were able to achieve with, with your friends. And also the fact that the way you're presenting them, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the age, the, 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 the muscles sags, the, 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 the bandaid from what I'm guessing was a, maybe a mole removal or some kind of throat. Right. And so, and that, and that photo in particular, I think about just because like, you know, even that to me is as, uh, you know, like an aging man is a reality that, you know, uh, one might have been self-conscious about like, well, I really don't, you know, let's take the picture when I'm not like that. But 
you, but just that little detail adds to sort of that story that you're telling and that this uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's um i appreciate that you noticed that detail because you know i thought about that uh, several of the teachers at hartford were who, who were excited about the idea of the project had it in their heads that this should be black and white you know it's just and i was sort of went down that path at first that i did a lot of black and white um photos but then i decided that really you needed color to describe skin mm -hmm. of an older man and mm -hmm. and then I, I wasn't really used to seeing that mm -hmm. um i i was used to seeing uh black and white photos of older people um but not 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 as much seeing skin of an older person in color um let me ask you um just a technical thing, the idea of the gatefolds and the portraits uh, in the gatefolds, was that your, your, cho your choice, the, the designer, how did that element of the book, which I find really uh, effective, how did that come to be? That was the designer, uh, Sib, and I think that was the element of genius, really, on his part, because... Um, I mean, he, he had a lot of other design concepts that were in the earlier drafts. And little by little, I took some of those out, feeling that it would make it the book a little too designerish. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he, he's known for doing some really creative stuff with not just with gatefolds, but with with things covering the text and you open it up. And I started out with all of that. And little by little, I pared some of those away. But I thought that the gatefolds were sort of a central concept because it the it a it hid the the uh contemporary photos of the older person so you've mm -hmm. been seeing all these snapshots and then you kind of come to it and have to open it up uh, so it slows you down you have to open it up and then um it's framed by these white blank white pages so it's more stark um and and then as you're closing it, which is also time consuming, um, you may catch a glimpse of the old guy next to that snapshot and mm -hmm. you know, design so that you might see it that way. And so the idea that it's hidden and then revealed and then hidden again is sort of the book. It gets repetitive. It happens a dozen times because there's a dozen people that are, in, you know, portrayed in the book. But um, that was... Uh, really Sib's concept and I, um, I was grateful for it. It was a difficult one to execute actually because the the gatefolds don't include the portrait. The gatefolds are just those white pages. Mm -hmm. The portraits are printed separately on different paper and then had, have to be manually inserted right. by, the, by the binder. Right. And which is why it's perfect bound, not sewn. And not every a printer and binder uh, is comfortable and will agree to doing this. <laughs> so, um, Sib and I, you know, it, another aspect of uh, Dutch photo book um, uh, tradition is that designers and printers uh, have a long history of collaboration. So, which, you know, is very important, <laughs> I think. And so there are a lot of great printers around, but this idea that Sib knew uh, people who could work with the binders and do mm -hmm. this project and not be afraid of binding those uh, uh, 
portraits that are tipped in mm -hmm. was, you know, but we held, uh, we held our breath for a, <laughs> for a bit <laughs> to make sure that it would be, you know, bound tight. And, and, and it is. It's interesting that you said earlier, uh, the program that you were involved with, uh, it was book centric. This, you're, you're utilizing the format of the book, the strength of, of being able to flip through pages. The fact that you spend time with the text as opposed to if it was on the wall of an exhibit, very different experience. Um, are, and are you, are you a writer? I mean, would you like, it seems like, um, not that the, 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 it's equally as important, I think, to the book as, as the photographs. Uh, but there's this certain, you're, you're, it's not straight memoir. It's there's, there's, I mean, what do, I don't know if my question is just like, do you consider yourself a, a writer as well? Or, you know, uh, how did, how, did, how did you reconcile those pieces of the puzzle in the book? Um, well, there's a couple of things to say. First of all, I consider myself more of a reader than a writer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sort of a lifelong reader of, you know, many different genres and, um, and I do like to write, but I can't say that I, you know, that I, uh, I, I don't write for, um, I've never thought about writing another book, uh, or previously, you know, writing a, writing a book I've written for, um, academia somewhat. I, I like to think through writing. So, I mean, I, I do enjoy writing, but, um, I really was unsure what my approach, approach would be in writing. There's, you know, many different approaches that you could take and sort of what the voice would be, um, you know, how, um, how I would express myself. And one thing I decided to do, which I think in retrospect was a really good decision was to, uh, work with an editor, mm. you know, where I think photographers, um, are used to the idea of considering using a photo editor, someone to help them, um, both select and sequence photos. But then if they want to have text, somehow they're not aware that real writers use editors. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. There's almost anybody's writing is going to be better with, with an editor. In my case, um, I worked with an editor who I knew, somebody I've also known from childhood, but uh, from a different circle of people who is a professional editor and um, teaches memoir writing to people and that sort of thing. And with her, before I started... Um, having her edit my work, it, we almost had a workshop, I guess you would say. And for a few weeks, she gave me writing exercises. And it was really free writing, just writing without editing. And I'm one of these people who constantly edits everything as I go. And I, um, I write and I rewrite and I rewrite. And um, that wasn't allowed. I just, I just had to, to, to write um, about uh, she gave me sort of prompts and they were all related to th these guys. Um, and from there, we, we went over them together and it, it became obvious what direction certain, uh, the, the writing should take. Um, but I don't know what would have happened if I just tried to do it on my own. I have no idea what, mm. what, how it would have turned out. Um, it, you know, it proceeded from being, um, a workshop kind of experience to a pure writing and editing experience. And I would have, you know, I would turn in my work and 
get these comments back or we would have long calls and we would argue and you know it was uh that was interesting because at in the hartford program you'd, you'd get 20 different opinions on every photo that people saw but when it came to looking at some of these little essays that i wrote you know the comment back would be oh that's good Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it wasn't a program that, where people were geared to giving feedback on writing. And so while it was nice to not be challenged on every little thing, like you might be with your photos, mm -hmm. on the other hand, you start to realize that really not getting the kind of feedback that's going to be important here. And yeah. I did get I did get that from my editor. And, um, you know, we struggled sometimes, but um, I, I have, you know, since found out that's very normal mm -hmm. and writers and editors sometimes really get into it um and so um so that was really helpful and there were there were times when uh connie is the name of the editor and she would point out that i slipped into a different voice mm. i slipped into you know a, a teaching voice or an explaining voice or something that wasn't you know the same the same voices as you know, I, I do write with different styles intentionally in the in, in these different essays, mm -hmm. but but what she was pointing out was really important that uh, I was getting into something that was more essayistic and opinionated or that that sort of thing, and I would recognize it and trash it or you know pull back and re-edit it and that, and that sort of thing. So that was really helpful, and I continued the editing of the of the of the text and adding some new text uh, long after school was was done mm. i felt i felt i didn't have that all you know i i i i had enough to do uh, a maquette and and you know sort of a draft of the whole thing for my thesis project but in terms of releasing this to the world it needed uh, more work and i spent the next year plus year and a half uh, doing that not not just with the uh, text but with the photos hmm well what that's that, it's interesting actually because the you, you mentioned earlier on in the conversation of how writing was part of the thesis project yet the writing is not getting the same kind of critical you know or critique that that the photos are for whatever reason and i guess that makes sense in some ways but to have the, the somebody edit your writing to really make that observation of you know your 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 voice is changing and from one thing to the next is um obviously valuable to the final uh you know the final version of the book but also um you know like like you said like everything you read has been edited by somebody or you know and that um as photographers and we're trying to like, you know, maybe we take pictures because we're not so good at explaining ourselves or certainly being eloquent enough in our writing to, 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 to support if we have a body of work to have the, 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 the wherewithal then to, to reach out and have somebody help you edit that, that makes a lot of sense. But the, the, the and the thing about the writing that, I really appreciate one again we're we're close in age um so uh I can sort of uh, project my own experiences onto the photographs 
but also the writing. Um, my, you know, also had a circle of friends that I think, you know, I think about them as you're presenting your circle of friends and some who are, you know, have died and no longer with, with our, with my circle in a lot of the same ways. So I can relate to that. Uh, also, um, I think we grew up obviously regionally in a very similar kind of environment. I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey. And so um, even the photographs, the, the recent photographs, when you went back to the neighborhood, um, you make mention that this is kind of, like you said, we're from nowhere. Um, and I look at the photos and I'm like, well, it's not nowhere. It's to me, it's not this generics, like I can see those photos and know where that is, not specifically Long Island, but like that to me, like the same kind of trees and the same kind of architecture. And there's like the leftover piles of snow and ice that haven't completely melted or the barren trees with the walkway uh, and sort of the tire marks in, in the ground. Um I see those and I'm like, know that. I know what that feels like, what that smells like. Um, to me, it's not necessarily nowhere. Well, what I, what I meant by nowhere is, is that, um, you know, those kinds of suburbs, you know, I refer to them as automobile suburbs, you know, mm -hmm. they're sort of a product of post-war uh, suburbanization. Um, this, this was a place with no history. Mm -hmm. Um it wasn't like there were older homes, you know, from different era or anything like that. Um, it's just somebody could tell you that those were potato fields. <laughs> right. upon time, but there's right. no evidence of it. There's, there's, there's no history. There's no local economy um, because it was a bedroom community. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in those senses, you know, that type of um, that type of built environment um you know was described as 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 nowhere fair enough i i and not that i'm challenging you on that but the 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 i don't know if you know i mean i live in new mexico now the suburbs are there's similarities to it but there's you know the suburban tract houses out here look and feel differently um but i think that there was you know, and I'll just, it's a personal connection that I have with your work that I just kind of felt. Uh, and, and the idea not to call you out on like, we're from nowhere, but the, the we are in essence, we share that feeling because we're also only this feeder communities to this metropolis of New York city. And that, you know, um, very much like, I'm sure the people that were living in your town when you were growing up, dads were all probably going into the city or commuting into work, just like, you know, our, my, my family and friends were. Um, but to feel that you're so close to the sort of the epicenter of the world, and yet you're not, you're far, you're, it's sort of like in this, you know, like you called it a bedroom community. It's just the, the, I, I remember being aware of that sort of so close and yet so far kind of, yeah, uh, uh, of reality really growing up so much so that, you know, like when in the winter, when the, it got cloudy before it snowed, 
you could see the glow of New York City in the sky, you know, from our backyard. We were, and it was like, you know, I was like, what is that? Oh, well, that's eight million people living on top of each other. And here we are in the, you know, the little suburbs kind of removed from all of it. And then this sort of, it's, I, 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 I try to turn the derogatory term uh, bridge and tunnel on its head and, and try to, you know, as, uh, associate some pride to it. But in a lot of ways, that is a, a sort of our common experience. And, yeah. so, and so I look at the photos in the book, not only of the, the environment, the, the, the environment of the snapshots feel very familiar to me because the light and the, the you know, the, the, it's just it's the same backdrop from my youth talk a little bit about you know what these what what the boys really like what it did for you growing up and what it means to you still today sure um i think by the time that we were in um high school say i think you know we realized that this was you know, a community of, of, of friends, but it was, um, a, it was more permeable at that point. You know, there were other people in it and then dropping out of it. It wasn't just this dozen people, but, um, after leaving, um, school, some people to college, different careers, people traveling different directions, this was sort of the group of 14 or so people that, um, sort of stayed in contact. And then, gradually over the years you start to realize that this is um a bit unusual that that most of the people we know uh who keep in touch with you know old friends it's one or two but somehow you know this was a larger uh group and you know i i feel like communities and this was a community in a certain sense are sort of fragile you know you pass through neighborhoods you pass through friendships careers um even families sometimes but somehow this was durable and um and and it, you know you don't quite know why and it's not as though all everybody is equally in touch with each person you know there are little groups within that are in, more in touch on a regular basis than than with others but at some point you know, it became obvious that this is um, uh, unusual and sort of special to have people that that you know implicitly. You know, it's, it's different than family somehow, but it's um, um, you know clearly this is more than um, the type of relationship that 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 comes and goes. Mm-hmm. So, really, the the book is uh, rumination on uh, mortality. Or more specifically on death. And I don't know how you feel about that, but that really, that's what I got from it. That sounds sort of morbid to, you know, f- focus on that. But um, I actually grew great, um, I don't know what the word is, inspiration or joy to some degree on just contemplating mortality in such a deep way every day in writing and in photographing. Um, it was, um, I don't know, it just seemed, it seemed like an important thing to do. It, it's hard to maintain that on a ongoing basis, but 
sometimes, you know, I think it's important to remember that aspect because, you know, it sounds trite and these are, you know, sort of almost cliches, but, um, you know, all of our moments could be last. You have to, you have to sort of make the best of what you have and stay in touch with people and all of those types of things. You're reminded of that when, when something like this happens. Um, I had read an interview with Philip Roth, the novelist Philip Roth, and he was talking about what a shock it is when friends die. Um, and, and I, I completely related to what he was saying. He was talking about how you, you're, we, we grow up expecting your parents and grandparents to die at a certain point in our lives. And we hope we'll outlive our children. Um, and it's almost like that's the contract. You know, that's our expectations. But no one mentions, no one talks about friends dying. And when it happens, it's a, it's a great shock. And, um, and then after the shock, an interesting thing happens. You start seeing that person with a sort of clarity that you didn't see them with before. And that's really the way I thought when I, when I, when I read his, his comments about that, I, I thought that was exactly describing my experience. I described, you know, Eddie dying and John dying later at the end of the book. There's two more guys that die, but that was exactly my experience. I felt like I saw them with a clarity I didn't have before little criticisms or, you know, all those kinds of things fall away. Mm -hmm. And what's left is sort of a love for a person and a, and a really clear view of them that um, that's hard to maintain in day-to-day -day life with most of the people we interact with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent understand that and get it. And the, the book is, um, a, a, a document not only to uh, our own our, our own mortality, but the 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 importance of of those friendships and those relationships and and what it does mean once those people aren't around anymore. Um, and I think that that uh, that's one of the beautiful uh, beautiful components of, of this project. So um, so I think this might actually be a good point to wrap things up. Sure. Um, Wonderful talking with you, Rick. Uh, thank you for uh, being my guest today. It's been my pleasure, Nick. Thank you. So there you go, folks. There's my interview, a conversation with photographer Rick Schatzberg. The title of the book, again, is The Boys, and it is published by Powerhouse Books. And uh, I recommend that you get your hands on a copy of this book, if you are a photo book fan, certainly you'll appreciate a lot of the great design details and printing details. Um, Rick has written extensively throughout the book, and there's this really beautiful balance between his words, old snapshots, and contemporary photographs that he created with a 4x5 camera. I'll leave links to Rick's website and a link to the book where you can pick up your own copy in the show notes. Also, if you go to righteyedominantpodcast.com, you'll see that I have uh, a section down at the bottom if you'd like to leave comments, uh, feedback, uh, ideas for other episodes. I'd love to hear from you. Also, as always, if you could, if you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review 
on the platform of your choice for this podcast. It will certainly help get more listeners to come check out the show. So that is it for this episode. This has been the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I've been your host, as always, Nick Toro Jr. And until next time, stay well. This podcast is a production of RightEyeDominant.art. The music and sounds for this episode are courtesy of The Conant Project, The Free Music Archive, and Yazar.